It's another coronavirus discussion on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Mike DeWine has opened the floodgates even wider for the coronavirus vaccine. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Got lots to talk about, so let's get to it. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has really thrown up in the floodgates now. How many more people will be eligible for the coronavirus vaccine starting Thursday? And who are they? And Jane Cahoon, do they have any hope in hell of finding it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's another topic. But they're, they're people like you, Chris. People uh, age 50 and older will be eligible starting Thursday. And also people with type 2 diabetes and stage renal disease. They had already made people with type 1 diabetes eligible, but now they're including type 2. But sadly, this doesn't include youngins like Laura Johnston. But, um, <laughs> and it's, a, it's another 1.2 million people, right? It is, yes, 1.2 million who are in that age group of 50 to 59. And then about another 250,000 people have end-stage kidney disease and about 170,000 have type 2 diabetes, according to Governor Mike DeWine. DeWine said he had talked to county officials who said they had leftover vaccine at the end of the week. And, and that was an indication that they needed to broaden this group of people who can who can get shots. But as you said, we're still hearing reports from people who are finding it difficult to get a vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've we've written about this repeatedly. We've talked about it repeatedly. I'm aware from all the people that write to us, I mean, and there are a lot of them about the agony they're in, but I hadn't entered that, that labyrinth. <laughs> so just, just for kicks, I started clicking on some of these sites and realized, okay, I'm in this scrum now. Good luck. What yeah. a nightmare this is. It's just such a shame that DeWine didn't put together some central system that could just make this orderly. It's everybody for themselves. I don't know. Yeah. I might call the vaccine queens. <laughs> well, and, and I said, this is Laura Johnston. I sent out a message to our, our subtext audience and I got immediate responses about like, how can they offer it to more people? I can't find anything. And people literally listing every place that they've checked and tried to get an appointment. And And I think that this offering it to 50 and up is actually angered a lot of 65 and up people who are saying there's not enough to go around. Stop letting more people in. But you're, you're right, Jane. I'm like, oh, we're down to 50? Like 10 more years. Like, let me it one more time. I can, well, I can sign up. But DeWine did say yesterday, I think he used the, the figure, it's more than 98% of the it's deaths. It's 97% of the COVID deaths. People age 50 and above right. account for 97% of the COVID deaths. So he, look, I, look, we've criticized them for his unemployment failures. We've criticized them for this ridiculous vaccine thing. But Mike DeWine saved lives. The way he targeted the limited amount of vaccine at those most likely to die. You know, this guy literally saved lives. He saved lives the way he shut down the state last year as well. I mean, he, he can look in the mirror and know that there are people alive today who wouldn't be absent his uh, action. It's just, I'm dreading this. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, uh, yeah, on Thursday, I'll be eligible. I figure I'll get it, you know, in November. We'll see. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What most unusual step did a federal judge take Monday when he threw out a lawsuit that First Energy had filed against a whistleblower who provided information to agents investigating the utility's role in a massive statehouse bribery scheme? Laura Johnston, this was a pretty dramatic thing. 
Yeah, this is a big deal. So U.S. District Judge J. Philip Calabrese not only threw out the lawsuit that First Energy Corporation and the contractor had filed against the Chardon auditor, he actually ordered First Energy and the consultant, the Cleveland-based Clear Salting, to identify the person who authorized the disclosure of that whistleblower to begin with. So he's saying, you know, not only is this bogus, but you shouldn't have been filing paperwork that identified this, this man. His name is Michael Percio, and the case began in July, right after federal authorities arrested Larry Householder and four allies on the on the House Bill 6 scandal. We all know $1.3 billion bailout for two nuclear power plants once owned by a First Energy affiliate. Percio had only been working at ClearSulting as a senior analyst for a few months. He had to work on First Energy's in- internal audit. He downloaded 57 pieces of information from a clear salting database, forwarded it to his attorneys who sent it to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, who are now investigating. That included employee salaries, payment processes, records of contractors and vendors. And then he got fired on July 30th, the day Householder and the four allies were indicted. And then on September 1st, he gets sued. Yeah, and we should put this in, in a little bit of perspective. This lawsuit and his firing all happened while Chuck Jones was the CEO of First Energy. Chuck Jones was the CEO of First Energy when First Energy provided $60 million used for bribery to get legislation passed that was going to give First Energy more than $2 billion off the backs of Ohioans, really with no strings attached. So you got to look at this as Chuck Jones did this. Chuck Jones got fired when, when the board started looking at what are the financial shenanigans that were going on and new people are running First Energy. So this this lawsuit, the actions taken against this auditor were all during that period where Chuck Jones, who was responsible for what happened in Columbus, was still calling the shots. And I suspect that the people running First Energy today will comply with the judge's order by throwing Chuck Jones under the car. So we'll have to see how that goes. But this is Chuck Jones's legacy at First Energy, and we'll have to see where the criminal investigation goes regarding him. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio has finally hit the switch on his centralized coronavirus scheduling site. So is it any good and what can I do on it? Jane Cahoon, we've been talking about the need for this for ages. One place to rule them all where you go, put in your information, and with any luck, you'd be told date and time and place to get your shot. Not working like that, though, huh? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, the good news is that the site is live. It's called Get the Shot dot coronavirus dot ohio dot gov. It's costing three point six million dollars at least, developed by Accenture, and it is supposed to let Ohioans book an appointment. But that feature as of Monday was not really fully operating. And an Ohio Department of Health spokeswoman told Laura Hancock, as of Monday morning, there were more than fourteen thousand five hundred appointments available that you could book directly within this tool. So, you know, I gave it a try and my experience did not yield any of these direct appointments. So I'm not sure exactly where they are. In fact, my search didn't yield any appointments. It first takes you through a list of questions to determine if you're eligible. And right now that age 50 hasn't kicked in yet. So you have to be 60 or older. And then you can type in your zip code and it gives you like a list of of providers. So to me, this is similar to what they already had, where you could search for providers and then it, you know, tells you what their website is or you type in your zip code. Anyway, 
So you can click on those providers and it just takes you to their website. Right. So for my particular zip code, the locations were a hospital, a neighborhood clinic, and a few locations for like Walgreens, Giant Eagle, and Marks. The Walgreens site said there were no appointments within 25 miles of me. The Mark site said there were no appointments within 50 miles of me. The Giant Eagle website prompted me to like claim a place in a queue, and I didn't go any further than that. The neighborhood clinic had nothing available, and the hospital was using like my chart, and I'm not signed up for that, so I didn't explore that one any further either. So it's can I ask a question? Great. Laura Johnston. This is Laura Johnston. Wasn't the idea that they were going to tell you which places had them available so you didn't have to keep going through all the different websites, like saying this many appointments are available at this place, even if they didn't have it set up that you could book online there? Yeah, I thought it was going to, you know, be like a one-stop shop for, hey, here's available appointments. But basically, it's given you the providers and then you got to navigate through them to see if they have anything. And as I said, in my case, nobody had anything. So Governor Mike DeWine said it's going to take some time for all these, you know, they have 1,200 providers in the state and it's going to take a while for everybody to get into this system and probably another 10 days or so before all the hospitals get on there. So I guess, you know, we're going to have to give it some time to see if things improve. He said it's going to get better every day, you know. And we're getting this mass vaccination site in in a week or so. So you're supposed to be able to make appointments through this site for that. So Yeah, that's maybe... the that seems to be the main point of getting this up and running is that they that that, that doesn't open till a week from what Thursday, March 17th. March 17th, yeah. And and it and it seems like they're trying to get this set up because that's how they're going to do thousands of people there and they this is the one place you go to register and get your time. You know, you got to give them a little bit. It's a work in progress, but it's not it's not what we need. It's by no means a central scheduling site for the entire state. It it it, it pretends to be and maybe it'll get there. Right. So, Chris, you better be poised at your keyboard there yeah, when they uh, start well, opening the mass vaccination appointments. No, nobody's going to let me do it until Thursday because that's when the right. age changes. Right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Cleveland teachers finally think better of their reneging on a deal to return to the classroom in exchange for being vaccinated against the coronavirus? Lord Johnson, we've talked about this before, that they accepted Mike DeWine's deal to get the vaccine in on the condition they return in March. And then they voted last week not to come back, which was a shocking kind of reneging on the deal. What's the status this morning? Well, it's changed several times even in yesterday. So they came to an agreement yesterday that they would be back in the classroom tomorrow, Wednesday. The teachers will go back. They were supposed to be in yesterday, Monday. We talked about it on the podcast. We said we weren't really sure what was going on. They didn't show up, but the district kept telling us that, you know, they were on schedule. And so they are. They're going to have two virtual orientations this week for kids that go back March 15th and 22nd. The only kids that go back this week are special needs students. They'll have an orientation in person on Thursday, and then they will actually be in the classroom on Friday. So that has the agreement. They've they've said that they've they've met the demands of the teachers, that they feel like they're safe. And then, then the kids will start to come back. It is just a hybrid schedule, though. So there's going to be one cohort that goes Monday and Tuesday, one cohort that goes Thursday and Friday. And then Wednesday is this kind of remote instruction without necessarily being 
online with a teacher. It's asynchronous learning. So they'll be given some assignments to do. So we're still not talking all the kids in school every day yet. Okay. But at least, at least they're. They are going. Yeah. And, and Cameron Fields and Alexis Oatman worked on the story yesterday and Cameron's got some interviews with some parents today. And I was like, I wonder how they're feeling. I mean, after a whole year. So hopefully we'll get some, some feedback from parents on whether they were confused or if they're just like, yes, thank you. My kids are going back. I don't think the teachers had a lot of sympathy in any quarter. I think most people looked at what they did as breaking a deal. If you didn't want to go back, don't get the vaccine. But once you took the vaccine, how could you not go back? And that seemed to be a universal opinion. So I'm not surprised if they felt that pressure that they finally got together and said, look, we made a deal. We got to live up to it. You had Lieutenant Governor John Houston go on Fox and Friends on Monday criticizing the union and saying they signed the document, as we know, Houston likes to refer to this document. They went and got the vaccines and now they're not going back for in-person education. So he pressured him on national TV. DeWine got asked a question at his briefing in which he was less critical, but said, you know, it's very safe. So I'm sure they were feeling some pressure. And actually the news release that came out late last night around 930 mentioned that Frank Jackson had gotten involved on Friday. So yeah, there was a lot of, of people working on this. Okay, well, let's we'll see how it goes. It's good that the kids can get back in the classroom. That was DeWine's mission in providing the scant supply of vaccine to the teachers. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. After coming oh so close to passing the school funding law last year, is the legislature on track to finally do it this year, 24 years after the Ohio Supreme Court first declared the state school funding system unconstitutional? Jane Cahoon, is this it? Do we finally get some fairness in the way schools are funded? Well, they are certainly close. They are looking at the possibility of folding this funding overhaul into the state budget that they have to pass by the end of this fiscal year. And some lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have introduced basically the same bill that died at the end of the last legislative session during the lame duck. The new one's called House Bill 1. And it's complicated, but it, it attempts to set up a fairer funding system by, by creating a formula that starts off with, with what does it cost to educate children? They start with factors like teacher and staff salaries, their professional development, the cost of dealing with kids' social and emotional needs and their career readiness and technology. Then there's additional funds that would flow to districts to make up for poverty and for preschool and special ed and gifted education and other and other things. The price tag is going to be pretty hefty because when fully phased in, it would send an extra $2 billion a year, you know, which is roughly a 25% increase to the state's K-12 schools. That's on top of what, you know, they already pay, which was just under $8 billion last year. But uh, so the the way this bill works, it's set to increase the funding like each year over six years. So it wouldn't be fully funded in this budget. They wouldn't be spending the full amount until like 2028. But part part of the the Supreme Court's ruling was that the, the property tax system that funds schools is uneven because rich communities have more money and poor communities have less. Is this law going to address property tax collections or is it just going to try and balance that are providing money, more money to schools that don't make as much off of their property taxes as the rich districts do? I think it's the latter. They're, they're trying to make up for this inequity 
that poorer districts face. So as I said, they, they did come up with this six-year timetable, but they might they might collapse that into a shorter time period. We don't know. But there are also like various places where they could look to find the extra money. I don't know if you want to hear about that. Well, I was going to ask, but do they have $2 billion just laying around somewhere unused? Not really, but the state is projected to come in $319 million a year under a legal spending limit. There's also a difference between the revenue estimated by DeWine's budget and what the legislature is is estimating. And then we have another round of stimulus money coming, and uh, we might get more revenue if they finally legalize sports betting. So there are various possibilities where they could they could come up with the money. But anyway, they have been holding hearings on this. And, you know, the question is, will they make it part of the budget or pass it as a standalone or at all? You know, with this legislature, you never know. So that all is still not determined. Yeah, I guess the the thing that's sad is is that this is the kind of thing that in every every two years when they're doing the budget, they can change. And it would have been nice to build in a structure, a funding source, series of funding sources that are dedicated to schools. I mean, we we collect property taxes in in each district that goes to the schools. It would have been nice if the solution set aside some part of the budget system guaranteed for schools so that future versions of the legislature, if they get into their weird tax cutting mode, you don't savage schools again. This is this this will take care of it for the next two years, but it's not a long term fix to school funding structure. That's that's well we'll have to give them a chance here and see if they if you know how permanent they make it. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How long has the Summit County Board of Elections been dysfunctional? Laura Johnston, Frank LaRose slapped them silly last week, wouldn't let them reappoint their their chairperson. It turns out they've been this way for a long time. You wrote about them a long time ago. (laughs) Yes, since before 2008. That's when a GOP chair was booted from the Summit County Board by then Secretary of State Jennifer Bruner, who is a Democrat and unlike Frank LaRose, who's a Republican. So back in 2008, she rejected the appointment of Alex Arshinkoff, who is this longtime Summit GOP chairman. She stated political conflicts, threats to workers. There was a turf war that went all the way to the Supreme Court. They had they'd fought over who would be next. Um, they The party said, OK, take this Brian Daly. But Bruner rejected him. So she instead appointed Donald Varian, who was a Republican, suggested by a Democratic elections board member. Then there was fighting within them. There was a lawsuit. And the Supreme Court ruled in, I guess, June of that year that Bruner had to replace Varian with the request as daily. So, but yeah, it's been going on for that long. And then Arshinkoff died in 2017 at the age of 62. He was like a kingpin in Summit County. He oversaw all this campaign fundraising and patronage for three decades. But as we learned last week from Frank LaRose's letter, they had training in place in that board that they put in place in 2004 and never implemented. So I can't even tell you how long it's been dysfunctional. Is there a reason? I mean, what, <laughs> this doesn't seem like it's that complicated, and yet they just cannot get out of their dysfunction. Well, it sounds like rather than focusing on elections and providing fair elections for everyone in Summit County to you know, be the springboard to pick the people who would you know, run the government, it was kind of run like the, a patronage shop, right? That the kingpin of Summit County for a long time was in charge there. And so it was all about just like giving jobs to your cronies. I, I 
I'm speculating here. I don't know this for a fact, but the way that it looks is that it wasn't a professional system. It was, you know, run by the Republican board. I wonder how other states do this. It seems like our election board system just falls apart at times. And this is a great example. And at this time, it deprived people of their right to vote. Uh, shame on the Summit County Board of Elections. It's this week in the CLE. What steps did Ohio officials announce Monday for trying to fix the chronically broken unemployment system? Jane Cahoon, we're really in the boy who cried wolf territory here. I mean, we keep hearing from them they're going to fix it. They don't fix it. So what's the latest claim that they're going to fix? (laughs) Well, it's not totally clear, in my opinion, but they do have a couple of contracts they signed. Although, of course, they haven't told us the cost of those or whether they were competitively bid. You know, we've been waiting for more than a month since Governor Mike DeWine announced that he was bringing in these people from the private sector to try to help fix the many, many problems with the system, including the overwhelmed call center where people have to wait. or not get through the antiquated computer system and the rampant fraud that they're dealing with now. So on Monday, DeWine used his briefing to give us a report on this, which we were anticipating. And basically, it included a lot of business speak and not that much in terms of concrete steps. But as I said, one of those steps was signing these contracts with IBM and LexisNexis to help fix the call center and the fraud problem. So Those are soon going to be followed by other contracts with large data firms to help clear this backlog of 1.25 million pending jobless benefits cases. Um, And that's according to a guy named Jeff Bick, who is leading this, one of our favorite terms, public-private partnership set up by the governor to help the system. LexisNexis is supposed to set up like what he called a secure door to stop the unemployment scammers. And IBM is is working on this suite of, you know, Watson artificial intelligence products to, to help coordinate the call center activities. So they're also going to do what they call a full review of the unemployment system's relationship with third-party vendors. They're going to focus on making sure they're doing what they need to be doing, according to, to FIC and making sure that we're getting everything out of this that we need to. So there you have it. Just Well, you know, there. it's been a full year now. Or next week, I guess, it'll be a full year since the problems with this system became apparent. And, and people have been in agony because of it. I would think that the failure to fix this for a year, the suffering that this caused to a whole lot of people, would work against Mike DeWine in his re-election run, that... that Maybe not on the Republican side, because he's going to be primary challenged by people trying to be further right than right. But but when it comes to the general election, I would think that whoever the Democratic candidate is could appeal to people over the year they spent dealing with this broken system and say, you know, don't vote for him. He wouldn't fix it. He left you hanging. I'll fix it. And I, it's surprising to me that that they just haven't gotten it fixed. They've had a year. And they sit in front of us and talk about it all the time. John Houston, how many times has he done it? And it's still not fixed. We still are hearing from people that can't get their money. Yeah, we, we followed up during the question and answer period of the briefing. Laura Hancock asked, okay, we've heard about these reviews and recommendations. Number one, what are these contracts costing? And number two, like, can you point to any like concrete steps here? And so... <laughs> yeah, right. I, I just it, for political 
you know, to survive politically, you should fix it. You shouldn't have this many people distressed. And I just think he's. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's it could be a really potent campaign issue because of the unprecedented number of people who've been thrown out of work and and hit by this. And even if they've just been furloughed or laid off or I mean, well, they're worried about paying the rent, right? They're worried about buying food. This is, you know, this is the critical stuff of your life that they're that they're dealing with. And they won't forget that. So, you know, come November 2022, you'll be able to touch those those heartstrings a little bit and say, remember what it was like. This is the guy who wouldn't fix it. So why not just fix it? Not to mention the people who've had their identity stolen. They've been scammed and and they are totally annoyed because they can't get through. And, you know, it's just that's like half of us. So, yeah, I just it's a surprise they haven't fixed it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The death of Michael Stanley over the weekend brought an overwhelming wave of memories and grief in Northeast Ohio, including many thoughts about Stanley's record of selling out shows in Blossom and the Coliseum. Laura Johnson, what makes those sellouts so notable? Well, I mean, the fact is he's not really a national act. I mean, Michael Stanley is a Cleveland celebrity. And Joey Marona wrote a wonderful story about him yesterday that had these old kind of the concert bills and I think old plane dealer um, pages from from these concerts. And he wrote like this very, you know, moving tribute for him. And I just want to quote him. He said, Stanley was so popular here. I was truly shocked when I realized years later, he wasn't a big star in the rest of the country. For many music fans in Northeast Ohio, his passing stirred up fond memories of their youth when they paid $12 to see one of his many sold out shows at Blossom or camped outside at the Coliseum for tickets to watch him perform on New Year's Eve, complete with indoor fireworks, of course. So, I mean, Michael Stanley was huge in the 70s and 80s. He had people open for him like John Mellencamp and Billy Joel. And and then so Joey ran down some of these great concerts at the Coliseum. They broke the Blossom attendance record in the summer of 1982. 75,000 fans saw the band. And then, and then in 2020, March 2020, think about how close that was to the beginning of the coronavirus. They played a sold-out show at the Akron Civic Theater called Stage Pass Revisited, and they played a bunch of songs from the 1977 live album. So that was truly the farewell, farewell concert. He'd actually had farewell concerts before, but that one, you know, obviously that one stuck. It's it, the power of music, the outpouring that you saw over the weekend after he died. And he wrote a, a just a lovely note to his fans mm-hmm. to say, if you're reading this, I'm gone. And it was just a a, a nice way to, to say goodbye. But people were coming out of the woodwork with memories and stories. And the theme that came across is he was just a genuinely decent human being and people loved him. I, I you know, I didn't grow up here. I'd heard of Michael Stanley, uh, but I had no idea how big he was till I, till I moved here. And you know, he was part of every music conversation in Cleveland. So, yeah, Joey's story is pretty good. We also had a Gary Graff obit that went into a lot of it and what he meant that was uh, also very good. Both are on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, that'll do it. We got to go cover some news, right? Always. <laughs> such such excitement early in the week to get out there and rally up those stories. At least we don't have a governor's briefing today because he got that out of the way yesterday. Right. But we already have posted stories today, Chris. We're way ahead of you. I know. It's the news (laughs) never stops. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE.